Welcome to the Vandenack Weaver Legal Visionaries podcast, brought to you by Interactive Legal. Here's your host, Mary Vandenack. Welcome to today's episode of Legal Visionaries, a weekly podcast discussing updated legal news, as well as evolving methods of providing legal service. I'm Mary Vandenack, founder and CEO at Vandenack Weaver, LLC. I will be your host as we talk to experts from around the country about legal and tax issues, trusts and estates, business succession and exit planning, law practice technology, management and leadership, and well-being. First, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Foster Group, Veterans Victory Housing and Business Centers, and Carson Private Client. Here's a message from Interactive Legal. Technology has become an essential part of our daily lives. However, not all fields have embraced technology. Lawyers, especially estate planning attorneys, need to stay up to date with specific laws and any issues affecting taxes and wealth preservation. Implementing an automated drafting system can help lawyers spend more time with their clients and less time doing back office tasks. Estate planners and law professionals turn to Interactive Legal as their main resource for the latest planning strategies. Interactive Legal provides the most comprehensive productivity system on the market with an easy-to-use document drafting system, extensive continuing education, thought-provoking discussion forums, and more. With Interactive Legal, attorneys get to spend more time with their clients. It's time to connect, collaborate, and create. To learn more about Interactive Legal, visit interactivelegal.com. Wealth planning focuses on liquidity management and charges you a fee based on a percentage of your assets. But entrepreneurs typically invest in their business, resulting in light liquidity. That requires a unique strategy. At Carson Private Client, we provide a proactive and holistic strategy for building and protecting your wealth. Our mission is to alleviate the stresses and the burdens of coordinating all of those financial strategies. Carson Private Client will work with your current team of advisors to customize a strategy that manages all aspects of your life and wealth, giving you back the time to focus on what matters most. Complex needs require sophisticated solutions. Reach out to our office at 402-779-8989 to schedule your consultation. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. On today's episode, my guest is Mitchell Hockenberry. Mitchell is a career military man, first enlisting in the Marine Corps and later being commissioned in the Army as an infantry officer. He has multiple combat tours as an infantry platoon leader during the surge of Iraq and later as an infantry company commander where he led the last fighting force out of Iraq in December of 2011. He has been awarded numerous medals and badges. During his entire military career, he worked with hundreds of soldiers to improve their financial well-being. Today, he helps others achieve their financial goals. His undergraduate degrees are in finance and banking, and he holds an MBA, is a certified financial planner practitioner, a retirement income certified professional, and a registered social security analyst. I asked Mitchell to join me today to talk about a book he's written titled Tactical Influence. He's actually written two books, or there's two books that I know of. You can clarify if there's more or more coming. 
And so today we're going to talk about tactical influence, but we are going to do another episode to talk about another book he's written, which is titled, If I Had Only Known About Money Then, Wisdom That Would Have Saved a Million Dollars. So thanks for joining me today, Mitchell. No, thanks for having me. I, I appreciate being here. Um, uh, there, there, there are only the two books currently, but uh, there's two others in, in the making as we speak. Putting a book together, as somebody who does a lot of writing, is really a challenge. So I really commend you for getting two off the presses already. Yeah, I appreciate that. To kick things off, can you give listeners an overview of what the term tactical influence means in the context of leadership and communication? Yeah, I think we'll get a little bit further into it, That the, the big thing that really spurred me doing this. Um, but I have to go right off the bat and just give a nod to Robert Cialdini. He wrote a book called Influence. Uh, very, very um, uh, popular book, sold millions. Um, I learned about it through Charlie Munger, uh, who's a business associate, best friends with Warren Buffett. Uh, and at any rate, in, in, in Bob Cialdini's book, uh, he's basically got seven principles of influence, or we could call them persuasion. Uh, they are liking, social proof, reciprocity, uh, authority, commitment, and consistency, scarcity, and even unity. Um, so if you use each of those, or even better, if you can use multiple ones, what Charlie would call a Lollapalooza effect, um, they're actually really powerful when it comes to not only leadership, but also communication. I think we'll kind of dive into it a little bit further. And I assume the Lollapalooza effect refers to the rather crowded concert in Chicago every <laughs> summer. Is that? Well, he kind of, he kind of <laughs> coined that a long time ago. Um, I, I did bring his book with one of the, one of his books, Poor Charlie's Almanac, which is one of my favorite books. Um, it's basically a collection of different speeches that Charlie has given. And I think that came from like a 1985. So I think he beats the, 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 the fair. So they um, might have named it after what he did. That's very possible. By calling it, by gathering. I, I actually have just happened to be in Chicago a few times. So when you said that, I'm like, the, I'm just having this vision because we have the American Bar Association staying at the same whole hotel with all the people who are going to the Lollapalooza. So there's right. these young men and women walking through with bizarre outfits while we're walking through in our suits. Well, can you talk a little bit about what led you to write Tactical Influence? Yeah, um, so there was a, a pretty significant emotional event that occurred um, on January 28th of 2008. Uh, I was a, a, a new platoon leader in the, uh, in the infantry, infantry platoon leader, um, in Iraq. And so we're in uh, what was termed back then Al-Qaeda's last stand. Uh, and at that time, we had uh, basically done what we call a surge into the country. We, we didn't have enough soldiers um, to, to, to keep the peace, basically. And an insurgency had come up. So we came in, we do what we do really well, which is take a country. What we don't do very well is nation build. So we brought, all these, we brought a bunch of more soldiers in there because we had this huge uh, insurgency coming from the local nationals. And we had come out with this thing, um, General Petraeus, pretty popular name, uh, he had written this thing called the Counterinsurgency Manual. And the bottom line was get out there and get the local nationals, the local populace, to give you the information about where the bad guys are. And it doesn't say, like, how to do that, like a how-to. But what it does do is just tells you that's what you need to do. So as we go out doing our army things, which you could probably imagine in like a 1980s Stallone movie or Schwarzenegger movie, um, that's kind of typical of our, of our heavy-handed tactics. Uh, and they weren't working very well. 
And on January 28th, we had a, uh, a deep buried IED had hit a Humvee, one of our sister platoons, um, instantly killing five men uh, aboard that. So when I went out there to clean up that, plus, you know, we got into a pretty big engagement. When we went through that whole thing, um, I would love to tell you that the good guys won and the bad guys lost. But that incident, that's not true. In fact, we didn't get any, we didn't capture anybody. We didn't kill anybody and they killed some of ours. In fact, it ended up on Al Jazeera, them doing like a parade over the, the, the area. So that was a really, uh, that's what I call it a significant emotional event. So coming out of that, I knew that I needed to change things and I wanted to go about doing it differently than what we had done up to that point. And so I started using communication skills and that's why my, my, the subtitle of the book is how I countered an insurgency with words instead of with heavy-handed tactics. And so this has really been written for, specifically in my mind, the 400 platoon leader, platoon commanders in the Army or the Marine Corps that are going to leave small arm, uh, small unit tactics. Um, but when you read it, it, it definitely um, is taking from really the psychology and the business community and applying it into a military um, coin fight. And it's actually changed how we do tactics now in the Army for counterinsurgency. That's a long answer, I recognize. It is, but what I believe you're saying, if I can summarize it, is so you had this experience where it's like, if I had known this, which is kind of something you talk about, that this would have helped me do this differently or even react to this differently, respond to this differently, see this differently. And what you're really doing is abstracting while you wrote the book with a specific audience the principles can be abstracted to others. And sometimes there's about just leadership, information, things like that. And so what I'm thinking as I'm listening to you is that this can apply to attorneys and other advisors in working with their clients. Is no that doubt. possible? And, and what would that look like? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that that is that, that yes, let me just say that. Um, you put it way better than I do, which is probably why you're the host and I'm not. So that was that was well said. Um, this, I think, is a. Uh, I believe that it goes over any boundary. I think it's more of just a human connection that occurs. Um, remember, I'm talking heavy-handed stuff like "tell me what I want to know," right, and shaking somebody down. And if you have my wife and my child, I only have one. So if you have my wife and my child in another room and a whole bunch of guys with guns, I'll tell you anything you want me to tell you. But that doesn't mean it's actually intelligence that is actionable, that leads to bad people that we can kill or capture in a way. So how I would transfer that over to like how that could be a, a good positive outcome for clients and in, and in the field that you're in, I would look at it more of, there's a great quote that I like um, by Epictetus, and it's, it is impossible for a man or a woman to learn what he thinks he already knows. And I think what happens, first of all, is we have to have humility. I think that really helps in all of our aspects. And then you need to be proactive. So I think that you need to be a little bit of using that commitment and consistency that Cialdini is one of his persuasion techniques. Um, so I think about that on how we communicate. Um, again, I, I like the, the, the Charlie Munger book, the Poor Charlie's Almanac. Um, specifically, he gave this speech in 1985 to uh, USC Law School uh, students that were graduating. And he talks a little bit about, um, well, quite a bit, about two different things that he thinks are the biggest causes of problems. And the first one being incentive cause bias. Uh, so what is good for the professional would be good for the client and, and, and how that is a fallacy. But also the man with a hammer syndrome. 
And what he talks about when he looks at that is, to every man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And I took that when I read it, because this is literally the book that I use, this plus influence. And I took this and I was like, wow, I'm the infantryman with a rifle. So guess what? Everything looks like a target. I need to get, I need to get rid of that thought. I need to like push that off to the side. And so I think that is part of what I, how, how you could transfer that into. If, if I can take this stuff that wasn't written for military, put it into a, a counterinsurgency fight and come out successful, what can't it be used for? I like that a lot. And let's talk about your concept of tactical influence and how it applies in other areas. So you know, I'm a lawyer, as you know, and other right. professionals, and we have certain ethical principles, right? Mm-hmm. How... Would we, how do the ethical concerns that we would all have interplay with the concept of tactical influence when applying it professionally? Right. So that would, what, what would really come out is if you took those seven persuasion techniques, you can manipulate people. And that in of itself is an ethical issue, I think. Um, taking it a step further, if a business allows to have employees that use some type of eth- unethical techniques, and they keep those people around, then you're, and, and those people, it's okay because they're maybe meeting the numbers that you want, but they're pushing the gray area. I think that is another area that you would have, uh, that you ought to at least have some concern about what the ethical ramification of that may be. So really it comes down to a little bit, are you trying to manipulate or are you trying to move the needle? Right. So I'll just give a completely unrelated example. And I was talking to a physical therapist this morning about people who come in and don't realize that their pain, you know, their pain might be in their shoulder, but it might actually be coming from one of their hip flexors. Mm, They might need a psoas release, but they want you to work on the shoulder. Right. And so sometimes professionally, somebody comes in and it's kind of the same thing in terms of what they say they want. And so if what I'm really trying to do is, get them to see things differently versus manipulation, I'm probably not crossing ethical lines. I agree with that. And that might be really good communication skills. Right. I think it looks, I think it look, I think I would look at it from a leadership perspective first and say, what am I okay with? And maybe come up with scenarios where we talk through some of these things. Clearly that is a very good example that is not unethical. I think I in a war zone, you could really say, manipulate the heck out of those people. I don't care. Get the result, right? Like it's the, it's, it's the end result is more meaningful than how you got the information, which is why we do things like shake a person around a little bit to, say, to get them to, to, to give us the answer. But that doesn't necessarily mean, again, that you're getting the right stuff and it's not, you're not getting the right intel that comes out of that. And therefore, all I'm saying is in a business sense, I would think through how I want my business run, and I would have open dialogue with my employees so that we understand in these various incidents that you can, what's right and what's not. I think those are great, like, leadership classes to have, if you will, like, just break out things, like, once a month, and we just have, like, a vignette that we go over. And I think, you know, there are some similarities and probably some differences as I listen to you in terms of how they apply, again, conceptually, and then you just have to say, well... In a situation like you were in, what you have to do and how fast you have to react and right. is just a little bit different. Right. But I was kind of looking at this man with the hammer syndrome and thinking about something that a lot of times 
I will see with professionals is they know a certain type of trust. Hmm. And so that's the perfect trust for every client rather than really saying, so it's kind of both ways, right? It's like Mm -hmm. one on the side that I'm on realizing that the solution I like the best isn't always the best solution for them. Right. And that in the process of getting them from a solution, and it's not untypical that somebody comes in and they were at a cocktail party with their friends who every one of their friends had a particular slat or something mm-hmm. like that. And so they're convinced the slat's right for them. And I go, well, you're not even married, so a slat doesn't make any sense for you. But you have to do this persuasion process. I mean, that's a little bit of a dramatic example, but... We are going to take a brief break from our episode for a word from one of our sponsors. Financial advice is useless without empathy. At Foster Group, we want to hear your story, your goals, your worries about the future. Only then can we help you feel confident about all aspects of your financial life. Come experience how it feels to be truly cared for at Foster Group. Connect with us at fostergrp.com. Foster Group's written disclosure brochure, as set forth in Part 2A of Form ADV, discusses advisory services and fees, is available at www.fostergrp.com. Okay, let's continue our episode. Let's talk about some of the research that you've done. Are there any notable case studies where the strategic use of tactical influence played a pivotal role in shaping the outcome of a legal proceeding? Well, no, only because it's not my focus. So I'm certain that there's things that people, you know, will read out of the book and be able to take and apply to their own life, their own profession and all those fun things. But I do think that we need to be cognizant of just having like a multidisciplinary approach to how we look at our profession. So again, it goes back to that man with a hammer syndrome. And to really kind of dig into that just for a moment, it's when I was on the night of January 28th. So I'm back in the safety of my base. And I'm actually in my little room, which is a very small, it's like a cell, it's like a 10 by 10 type of thing. And I have my little whiteboard and I start thinking through, I'm recognizing I know the answers to, to what I should be doing as an, as an infantry officer. So I sat back and thought, well, what's a better way of looking at this? And let's look at it from a whole bunch of different disciplines. And for whatever reason, and it's, it's, it's kind of funny in, in a way, um, is... I was like, what would a second grade teacher do in this circumstance? And I literally started writing down, like, if I was a second grade teacher, this is how I'd go about this. And the next one that popped into my head was an accountant. And so I was like, well, what would your local CPA do in this example? What would an engineer do? What would a doctor do? And I started kind of thinking of it and trying to project from, from their perspective what they would do to help solve this case. And what that ended up doing was leading me into almost like the old Benjamin Franklin T chart, which is pro con, right? Pros on one side, cons on the other, except this time I put us, them. And I was like, well, what would, and them being not bad guys, but local nationals. And I was like, what would, what would I want to come out of this? I'm really childlike almost, or however you want to look at it was just, I was like, I want to win. And I don't even know what winning is at that point, but I'm like, I want to win. Okay. Well, what else do I want? Well, I want to get out of here alive. I want my men to get out of here alive. I want to be successful with getting information that leads to capturing IED cells, for instance. They're, you know, like really kind of dialing down a little bit. And what I ended up doing is I came over this whole chart and then I looked over on the right-hand side and I was like, okay, what do the local nationals want? Well, they, you know, Mavlov's hierarchy, right? They want, they want food and water and shelter. 
they want safety as well. They want jobs. They want all the, and so I kind of started coming down. It was like, well, look at that. They want safety and we want safety. How can we make those connect as a second grade teacher, as a lawyer, as a, an accountant? And I kind of went through those, those, those things. It was a really eye-opening endeavor. And that's what led me to be able to do things that no one else was doing uh, at all. Um, yeah, I'm going to go off the rails if I keep going, so I'll so, shut up. Well, I'm going to make a comment there because one of the things, and I can't remember, but we did a, an episode with a gal by the name of Ann Collier who talks about leadership theory. And there's um, the exact name of her leadership theory that she subscribes to. I don't recall. And, but it's based on Maslow's hierarchy. And it's like as a leader, mm-hmm. if you're – just looking for food and water, the chances that you're going to be an effective leader is little to none. So it's like the actualized leadership profile is what the name of it is. Okay. But I was also thinking in terms of when we're talking about this and even the ethical issues, I'm a planner. So it's a little different for me in that most of the time I'm working with a client one-on-one. Right. But if somebody's a litigator in a courtroom, they're not that dissimilar to where you were on, I think that was August 28th was the date? It was January, January. but okay. okay. You got yeah, the 28 so, down, that was oh, good. Oh, yeah, I got the 28. Okay, but so on that date, so the thing is a litigator in the courtroom on trial, their whole job mm. is persuasion and advocacy for the client. So I think for some of my profession right, and some businesses, it's a different answer. So let's just <laughs> talk about some practical advice and actionable steps that professionals can take. Yeah. So let me just tell you what I did in Iraq, just because it's kind of entertaining and I'm already kind of there in my head. Um, what I did is I just basically looked at, um, I'm going to go about this in a sales tactic in a way. So I knew I was moving into their neighborhood. We're getting, so that's the one thing that insurgency manual said was get off the base. So go live amongst the locals. So we took over a house that was uh, owned by someone that was very high up in, in Saddam's world. And so we took over that compound. So now we're going to live in there with them. And now I'm going around talking to people and I'm saying, look, I know you don't look like me and talk like me and have the same religion as me and all those other fun things. And I want to get information from you about people that look like you, dress like you, have the same religion, speak, you know, all that stuff that, and they may even be in the same family. And so I'm here trying to figure out how I overcome that. And so what I started doing was, as much as I could, you know, stripping myself of weapons, so to speak, and coming in like as, as, as soft as I could. And then and keeping my guys out of a room so it doesn't look so imposing. Like it almost feels like the very first time you ever meet Darth Vader when he comes busting in, the stormtroopers are already there and there's smoke coming in. It's like the sound, right? Dun, dun. You know, anyway, uh, I am a little bit of a Star Wars nerd. So um, I wanted to not be Darth Vader. And so I came in trying to be humble. And I would just ask questions and start looking around. And it's really what, where I could really see where a litigator could use this is you start looking around the room, right? And so you start trying to take in like the different people that are in there. And so for me, in that culture, the firstborn male is the most important part of that family. And so, in fact, when you introduce yourself, you're like, what is your name? And they'll say, oh, I'm Abu Muhammad. Abu means I am the father of Muhammad. You're not even getting the person's name, father of the son. And so you're like, oh, yeah, but what is your name? And, oh, it's Ishmael. Okay, got it, Ishmael. So I look over, though, at Muhammad, and he's got a little runny nose. And so I'm like, okay, I'm just going to mentally check that. And I'm not sitting there writing notes down. I'm just, like, mentally checking certain boxes. And I ask him, what do you do? Oh, I'm a plumber. Oh, right in this neighborhood? No, no, over in Somer, the neighborhood two, two neighborhoods away. 
And I get all this information, and yada, yada, I, I, I exchange information, like cards, like here's my phone number. I want you to call it. Okay, yeah, I got your phone number now. If anybody comes around and messes with you, you let me know. And then I walk out, and as I walk out, they stay behind, and my guys are going to the next house to kind of make sure it's secure before I just walk in on something that's bad. I take a couple notes. Muhammad, runny nose, plumber, Ishmael is dad. You know, I kind of write these things out. And the very next day, I call him. And I say, hey, Ishmael, it's Malazam Mitch. Malazam is lieutenant. It's Malazam Mitch. Hey, I, I just want to make sure that Al-Qaeda didn't come behind me and shake your house down asking, like, why I was in there or anything like that. Are you guys all safe? Yeah, we're fine. Click. I hang up. I don't ask for a thing other than, are you okay? Two weeks later, I call them back up. Hey, Ishmael, it's Tenet Mitch again. I just wanted to make sure that you're doing okay, but I was having my prayers this morning, and I just hit me that I was like, I'm an idiot. I, I didn't notice that Muhammad had this, this, remember he had a cold and I didn't offer you medical attention or my doctor. Can I send someone over to you right now and take care of your son? And he's like, oh, no, it's like a cold. It's over. It's done. Everything's great. I can't believe you remember that. Okay, well, you need anything. You let me know. Click. Two more weeks later comes along. And now when I call, I don't have to introduce myself. It's, well, a Mitch. When are you coming for dinner? Now all of a sudden, there's, I've never asked for anything from them. And there's a payoff that comes later down the road. And the payoff later down the road is six months later when we hear an explosion, previously we would get a report from our guys up at a tower saying, hey, there's smoke coming from 6 o'clock, and it looks like it's 3,000 meters away. And in the past, we would get in our vehicles and go running over there like a bunch of Keystone cops and get ambushed after a while because Al-Qaeda realized, just set a bomb off, they'll come out, and then you can attack them. Now I get to look up my chart when they say 6 o'clock, three, three clicks, I look at my chart and I'm like, ah, Ishmael lives there. Call Ishmael. And he's like, Malaza missed two men with RPGs just ran by my house. And I'm like, ah, which way did they go left or right from your front door? And now I get helicopters. They come, they track them down. And then we get to choose our route to getting to them. Again, long story. <laughs> but as you're, if someone, your listeners read into this or just listen, go to the source, go to Cialdini's book, Influence. As they read these things, this is what is like you're able to adapt this stuff to yourself and use it within your own profession, within your own life. I mean, use it with my own family. I was going to say one of the things that I was told, and it's a little bit, but it's I had a client say to me, you will never be everything to me, so build a network. And yeah. in a sense, you're building a network by Huge. building relationships, and that's a really important thing for professionals to do. Absolutely. So our professionals are a lot of type A's a mm -hmm. lot of times. So your book talks a little bit about the dynamics of the type A professional working with their clients or, as we mentioned, the litigator among opposing counsel. How does your book address what information does it provide us about the dynamics of the influence within these relationships? Yeah, I mean, I worked with a bunch of type A's. I mean, we're talking pit bulls. You can imagine going into an infantry platoon as the very first time, and they're looking, they know you're the leader. They watch you 24-7. I mean, you can't even blow your nose without them judging you. And so at every level, I found myself with them, and I'm not exactly an imposing person. I'm 5'7", I weigh like 140 pounds, so it's not like I'm some big hulking thing. And what I would say is the first thing that works is humility. And I would say it's okay to say, I don't know, but then as quickly as you can, go get the answer and come back with it. So that's the very first thing that I think that really helps. The other thing is what I would call a tactical pause. And it's not my term, it's a military term, but we're going to stay with it. And how it works in battle is 
when things are really sped up and there's a lot of, you know, adrenaline going and bullets are flying and things like that, there is a time when you actually have to pause. We call it a tactical pause, not a long pause, but you need to pause and you need to think through things before you react because you could react going into a trap. And so you need to think for a moment before you react. But then once you do, you go with it full force. I would say outside, like just in the in, in corporate world, in, 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 in the business world, I would sit back and just say, I think this works all the time. My wife and I just had a conversation about it like a week ago with our kids. So our kid was all amped up about something. My wife gets really emotional. And she was like, I don't know what it is. And I was like, hey, let's do a tactical pause. We don't have to like respond right away just because she's elevated herself up. doesn't mean we do because if we do... No one ever calms it back down. It takes way longer. But if we stay, if we just take the pause, we talk about taking the, t- the deep breath and counting to 10 when, right, when you're upset with your kids. If you just take that pause and think for a second, now you're able to respond, I think, in a little bit more, in a, in a better manner. Think about how the world would be improved if we had a lot of those tactical pauses right. before people sent emails or right. posted on social media, right? <laughs> right. Now, that would be a good AI thing to solve. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Yeah. So let's talk about psychological self-awareness for those seeking to employ tactical influence effectively. Yeah. So I think um, Richard Feynman had had a great quote, which is, the first principle is not to fool yourself, and you are the easiest person to fool. So I believe that just having the, the awareness of yourself, just understand your boundaries, right? I think you should understand your strengths and weaknesses. A lot of people will say, yeah, really work on those weaknesses. I say, no, chop the wood is one of the things that we talk about in the military. And what we mean by that is if you've ever, if you could just imagine, if you've never chopped wood, I mean, it's like a never-ending process, right? You're just chopping and chopping, and here comes another piece of wood, chopping and chopping. You just keep doing it. So work your strength, and then what I would say is, Surround yourself with assets that are strong where you are weak. There's plenty of people that uh, they would lose their mind if they had to go do public speaking in front of someone. So get somebody that's really good at speaking for you if you don't like that type of thing. But you may be really good at nugging away and reading and researching and all that fun stuff. Great. That's your strong suit. Get other people that fill up your weaknesses. I have a sign in my office that says, enhance your strengths, damage control your weaknesses. Mm. I just have to mention that my son has a firewood business, and so I have watched him chop. I don't help chop. Let's talk a little bit. You mentioned the concept of artificial intelligence. Let's talk a little bit about tactical influence in the digital age. Yeah, I think, um, in my opinion, it might be easier um, to know how to do these things. I think it's definitely more important when we think about the tactical influence. And what I mean that is really, if you are, are just okay with surrounding yourself with, with books, I would say arm yourself with those books. Um, former Secretary of Defense, James Mattis, who was also the Commandant in the Marine Corps, um, he's got this great quote, which is, thanks to my reading, I have never been caught flat-footed by any situation never at a loss for how any problem has been addressed successfully or unsuccessfully before. It doesn't give me all the answers, but it lights what is often a dark path ahead. And I think, just from my little corner of the world, I think the digital age, to some, might seem kind of like a dark path ahead. I disagree. I just think that it's almost, in a way, easier if you can just 
take the time. You got to do the reading. You got to do the self-reflected kind of like what we just talked about a little bit ago. But I just literally watched, read this article on Wall Street Journal, wrote an article, and I wrote a little uh, article about it on LinkedIn, um, where you've got these graduates that are coming in, specifically talking about mechanical engineers, and they didn't know how to do this one little process. I never forgot what it's even called. But the point is, it's like mechanical engineering 101 that you would do in college. But because of COVID lockdown, they were on Zoom, and they never actually got to do this hands-on thing. And so the, the old people in the, in, the, in, the, in the business had to, like, teach these young kids, like, this is how you do this, and now you got to know, and okay, great. And what I'm saying, it's almost like if you arm yourself with these things and let, like, the imminent dead be your mentors— you don't have to have Elon as your mentor. They could be people that have died, like Ben Franklin's a good one, you know, Jefferson, all these people that we look back on. Read what they've gone through and read the struggles that they went through and learn, learn what they've done wrong. And I think that's going to light your way as we move into the digital type of stuff going forward. So I think, you know, what your concepts resonate a lot with me. I'd like to just maybe have you talk in general about how some of the concepts of tactical influence can be applied in general to almost any situation. Yeah, I, 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 I absolutely think that there's universal truth to this thing. Um, I think if I, I, I already said it, but if I can use this stuff to counter an insurgency, what can't it be used for? I mean, I do use it with my loved ones, right? I use it in my own household. I use it when I'm going to buy a car and negotiate or on a house, I'm going to negotiate a price. I use this stuff every day of my life now. It's a book. I, not mine. I read Cialdini's book. I've read it like 13 times. I read it once a year and I always get something different because I'm a different person year in and year out. And so when I read it, I'll be like, ah, that's the thing that I'm missing in, in, in my problem that I'm trying to solve. And so I, I just think it's, it's, it's useful everywhere. I mean, really, Munger's pretty tight, and he literally gave Cialdini a share of, of Berkshire Hathaway, um, DA shares, by the way, uh, for uh, just as a thank you, just out of the blue. So this is Legal Visionaries. I would right. say throughout this, you've presented a lot of vision, so I'm not going to ask you for a specific vision question at the <laughs> yeah. end because I think you've been doing that as we go. Right. So I'm just going to ask you whether you have any last thoughts. Um, no, I think I, 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 no, I look, 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 here's the thing. I love this type of conversation. And what's really gets me excited is when people do read my book, there's, you know, just it's, it's my mom and her friends, but when they come to me and tell me what they got out of it and how it actually comes across and like has solved a problem for them, that is like worth gold to me. And so reach out to me and tell me like the things that you've come up with, because I love to be able to then, if it's okay, share that off with the world. I don't have to like tell you, I, I give you the attribution, but if you don't want it and you want to be anonymous, great. Um, but I'd love to hear that. And I'd really like to hear people's failures with it. Uh, Cause I think that's where we learn stuff. I think you learn more from failures of others than your own. And I'm a lover of learning. And as a fellow writer and presenter, I love feedback, and I think yeah. that a lot of times it's always awesome to me when somebody reaches out. And even if it's something like, I wish you had said, or right, right. You know, it's always helpful. Well, as we reach the end of our episode today, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Foster Group, Veterans Victory, and Carson Private Client. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to today's episode, and stay tuned for our weekly releases. 
Vandenack Weaver Legal Visionaries is made available by the firm and its attorneys for educational purposes and to provide general information, not to provide specific legal advice. Use of the Vandenack Weaver Legal Visionaries podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship between you and the firm or any of its attorneys. The Vandenack Weaver Legal Visionaries podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice, and you should contact an attorney in your state about any legal needs or questions you may have. A Huda Media Production.